Welcome, fellow brave believers. This is Kingdom Cast. I'm Sean Griffin. Thanks for joining me again tonight. We'll be looking at Matthew 16. There's a wealth of ideas in Matthew 16 that Jesus expressed and tried to teach those around him, including his disciples. We're going to review those tonight. Thank you for joining us, everyone. We already have a lot of people in the chat. If you've never seen Kingdom of Context before or our podcast, Kingdom Cast, make sure to subscribe to the channel that you're watching. That way you don't miss any new episodes that we put out. And uh, if you haven't already subscribed to our secondary channel, Kingdom Cast, where we highlight this podcast, please go to there. You can find it in the search bar on YouTube or on our recommended channels here in Kingdom and Context. Go ahead and subscribe. That way you never miss any new episodes when we bring them out in the future. And I want to thank everyone for already being here in the chat. It looks like it's already pretty lively. Let's see, Miss Janet's here. David Shear's back. Bill Craddock. Stephen Schofield. Mary W. John French. Whittle King. Welcome, everyone. Paul Levi's back. D Love. Jubion Kenobi. Frank and Beans is back. Welcome, brother. Christopher Gomez. Oh, we've got quite a few people in here tonight. Elias Stewart. Master Soup is back. Arc Builder CCMC. Pixie from Dixie. Clifford Phillips. A lot of folks in here tonight. Patty43. Appreciate everybody. Um, all right, guys. So. As always, we have um, this series that we're that we're you're watching right now is called New Testament Context for Pastors. So, as always, we want to just kind of put out there a general disclaimer that this particular series, if you will, uh, for for that we do with this is is not intended to uh, belittle. It's not intended in any way to disparage or talk down to or you know, it's not in, in any way derogatory towards pastors that are out there. We actually, here at Kingdom of Context, we respect pastors. We know the sacrifice they give in their life to do the role of a pastor and how much nonsense they have to put up with to maintain a good heart and a good spirit to be in the role of a pastor. It truly is one of the gifts of the spirit, one of the callings of the ministry that the Father enables through his spirit for people to do. So it's not for everybody. We understand that. There's a lot that goes into it especially in our modern times where it's not just as simple as being able to interact with the people, to teach them scripture, to care for them, to pray for them or whatnot. There's all this business that's involved with the church. There is, um, you, you know, it's to, to run a successful church as a pastor in our modern society. It requires them to actually be kind of savvy in business and as well as uh, the actual scriptures, which can take their time. And that's the problem that we run into is, um, I think if you asked, you know, and this is, I've never, I haven't done an official survey, but I think if you'd asked pastors, you know, if you'd ask, you know, 10 pastors, Hey, do you, do you enjoy all the busy work of running your church? Do you wish that you could minimize that and just get back to dealing with the people and pray with them, loving on them, teaching them the word, helping them grow in their discipleship and uh, tending to the flock that you feel God has called you to do, to be in that position. And I, I promise you the majority of them would be like, well, of course, yeah, I, I don't like doing all the busy work of, you know, making sure that the janitorial staff is taken care of, or if there's no janitorial staff, they're doing it themselves, or the lawn is mowed and the light belts are being paid. And, you know, all the different little business things that are necessities that come up with running an actual congregation uh, with a separate building in this modern modern century, because in the first century AD, most churches were held in people's homes. And it was much simpler, right? Because someone else already owned the property, took care of it, paid light bills or whatever. Or back in those days, of course, provided the fire for the for the fire, for the uh, heat and the lighting. 
uh, through the through the wood. And so these days it's a little different. And we just want to say there's we we have respect for pastors. This is not something that we do to belittle them or to speak derogatory to them. Um, with that said, there's a lot of pastors that are teaching stuff not in the Bible. There's a lot of pastors that are teaching only from the back of the Bible. There are a lot of pastors that have been taught some very poor eisegesis from the Bible college or the seminary they attended before they became a pastor, or sometimes even after they became a pastor. So our heart, our desire is to just go through the scriptures here at Kingdom in Context. Context is like, you know, it's what we try to hold um, up as the actual most, most uh, successful hermeneutic, the most successful filter by which we look at the scriptures and try to understand them and how they apply to us. And when you're looking for context, I actually have a video on my channel. So 10, 10 ways to find context in scripture. And we try to implore those every time we read the scriptures, just, you know, at its most basic premise, that means sometimes we're just looking up the definitions of words, which we'll be doing tonight. At other times, it means cross-referencing the same idea mentioned in other chapters or even in other books, which we'll be doing tonight. So with all that said, um, we just, if there is pastors watching this, we welcome you. We love you. We know that you're doing a good work. Um, you may disagree with some of the theology that this this uh, channel holds, specifically as far as discipleship and what it means to be a disciple of Jesus as far as our behavior emulating Jesus, which was the Torah, which was the commandments. Um, and there's a lot of semantic confusion with that. So if it's your first time watching this channel, please go check out our series called Torah Apologetics. And that also will try to address that. But I think as you'll see tonight, as we run through Matthew 16, a lot of this information is, we're just going to be dealing with the Bible. We're not going to be pulling from outside commentaries. I'm not going to be pulling from current events. We're not going to be pulling from anecdotal stories about someone's experience that may be relatable to something in this chapter. We're just going to be pulling from scriptures. And so I hope it blesses you and all the viewers that are watching. I hope that you guys enjoy it so that you can increase your conversation with your friends and family to spark and inspire them to just fall in love with the scripture, to become a word nerd like we are. So thank you for joining me. It's what is it? Tuesday night. And you guys are coming to study the Bible with me. I'm just, I'm honored. It's a privilege. All these word nerds have joined me. I love it. <laughs> All right, everybody, let's jump right into it. Let me pull this up real quick. And we'll start looking at Matthew 16. Okay. As always, we don't go through every single verse in each chapter. I try to highlight the most pertinent parts of the chapter. We were going to be covering a huge portions of this chapter um, because, you know, there, there's only so much time in the broadcast. So, all right, guys, Matthew 16, 1 through 4 says, The Pharisees and the Sadducees came up and testing Jesus. They asked him to show them a sign from heaven, but he replied to them, When it's evening, you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, there will be a storm today for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how... Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but cannot discern the signs of the times? An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and a sign will not be given to it, except the sign of Jonah. And he left them and went away. Okay, so what's he talking about here? Where he starts talking about, he doesn't want to actually acquiesce to their command or to their, their test. He doesn't want to actually give them a sign, but by consequence, he's going to give them a sign. And we're 
let's explain it because he references that sign called he calls it the sign of Jonah. Now, many of you may have already seen some videos that I've done on the sign of Jonah. So we're not going to go into a full on explanation in depth of this, but we're going to do a brief run through. And then um, we're going to look at hanging on his words. It's our brother Ken Heidebrecht and his channel. If you haven't subscribed already, go over to hanging on his words and subscribe and then come back. Or you can just do it from the search bar, actually, without, without even leaving this video. And uh, because we're going to watch a clip from one of his videos that that breaks down Jonah as well. But um, on our Milk and Meat playlist, if you care to go check out a, a long, in-depth, like hour and a half teaching on why did Jesus mention the sign of Jonah? I did that like three weeks ago. You're welcome to go check that out. It's on our Milk and Meat playlist. But real quick, let's read what what is this sign of Jonah? Well, let's read about Jonah a little bit, and then we're going to listen to something. It says, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish, and he said, I called out for my distress to the Lord. He answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. He heard my voice. For you had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me. All your breakers and billows passed over me. So I said, I've been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever. But you have brought me, brought my, excuse me, you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord God. And then the, following, the rest of the chapter, it says, while I was fainting away, I remember the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. That which I vowed, I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. And then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto dry land. So a lot of people may be saying, well, wait, so what is the sign of Jonah? What's going on here? Well, as we saw, he's praying and a lot of people think he's actually praying from the belly of the fish. That's the traditional Christian interpretation. That is, he's still alive in the fish, praying for God to save him. And that he's in the belly of this fish, alive, three days and three nights. But we're going to go through the words in the scriptures, and we're explain that he's actually already dead. So this is why it says the waters encompassed him to the point of death. And then the fish actually swallowed him to preserve him. So let's take a quick look at that um, real quick. One second. Let me, let me pull up this. The book of Jonah has always been one of my favorite little writings. It truly would be a miracle to be able to survive inside the innards of a great sea creature for three days and three nights. But is this actually what happened to Jonah? Is there something deeper to understand as it pertains to the sign itself? Why would Jesus say that this is the only sign he would give? Let's dig a little bit. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And that's in Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 to 40. It would seem pretty straightforward that what's being implied here is that, just as Jonah was in the belly of the sea monster for three days and three nights, so also would Yeshua be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. First of all, it is imperative to comprehend what Yeshua meant by saying that he would be going to the heart of the earth. I cover what this means in great detail in this video, which will be linked in the description. In short, the heart of the earth is a reference to the Hebrew word Sheol, or its Greek equivalent, Hades. Both places are synonymous and are simply the name for the abode of the dead, 
which is a compartment within the heart of the earth where the souls of all men go upon death and await one of two resurrections. Does the sign end there? I don't believe so. Let's take a deeper look at Jonah's unique and rather messianic experience. To briefly summarize the events of chapter 1, Yahweh instructs Jonah to go to Nineveh to cry against it because the wickedness of that city had come up before him. Jonah flees in the opposite direction and catches a ride on a ship that heads to Tarshish. While aboard the ship, Yahweh sends a great wind upon the sea, which makes things dangerous for those aboard. Eventually, Jonah admits that the tempest is because of him, and so, at Jonah's request, the mariners pick Jonah up, throw him into the sea, and the sea stops its raging. Then in Jonah 1, verse 17, it says, And Yahweh appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Before we get into the depths of this study, I'm going to propose that Jonah actually drowned to death, and that the great fish that Yahweh had appointed swallowed Jonah's body for the purpose of preserving it for three days and three nights. Try to keep this in mind as we move forward in this incredible text. Now, let's see what the second chapter of Jonah reveals to us. Then Jonah prayed to Yahweh his God from the stomach of the fish, and he said, I called out of my distress to Yahweh, and he answered me. I cried for help from the depths of Sheol. You heard my voice, for you had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me. All your breakers and billows passed over me. So I said, I have been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again towards your holy temple. Water encompassed me to the point of death. A great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever. But you have brought up my life from the pit, O Yahweh my God. While my soul was fainting away, I remembered Yahweh, and my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation is from Yahweh. Then Yahweh commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. I believe that right out of the gate, what verse 1 is informing us is that Jonah prayed to Yahweh from the stomach of the fish after he had already been resurrected back into his mortal body, which was the whole purpose of the great fish preserving him in the first place. I perceive there being a time gap of three days between Jonah chapter 1 verse 17 and Jonah chapter 2 verse 1. Jonah then goes on to recount his death experience and subsequent descent into Sheol which is synonymous with what the heart of the earth is. Keep in mind that this is the same place Yeshua went to when he died on the cross. If we take a look at a couple of different Bible versions with respect to this particular verse, we can see that what was translated for the Hebrew word Sheol varies slightly. Sheol is Strong's number 7585 and is a feminine noun. It's defined as being the underworld, the place to which people descend at death. Looking at Esau's rendition, which uses the KJV text, it says that Sheol is Hades, or the world of the dead, as if a subterranean retreat, including its accessories and inmates, the grave, hell, the pit. Unfortunately, Esau inserts the word hell as being a reference to Sheol as well, when contextually, there is no correlation 
due to Hell and Sheol not actually being associated with one another. The latter details will be expounded upon in another video. In verse 2, we see that Jonah states that he cried for help from the depths of Sheol. Notice the tense he uses here to depict when he cried out to Yahweh? It's in past tense, meaning that when he cried out to Yahweh, he was doing so from the depth of Sheol just prior to being resurrected back into his body. Oh my gosh! What's important for Jonah in this event is that Yahweh heard his cry for help. Verse 3 shows us Jonah describing his perilous journey after being cast overboard. Verse 4 reveals how much Jonah, despite his desire to not do what the Father had initially instructed him to do, had faith in the promise that he would once again look towards Yahweh's holy temple, which is an eschatological allusion to the first resurrection event, which happens on the day of the Lord when Yahweh's house descends onto the earth and the souls of righteous men get released, as they are currently stored in the very place where Jonah was speaking all of this from in chapter 2. In true Hebraic fashion, we see in verse 5 that Jonah cycles back to describing his death and the descent of his soul into the great deep where weeds were wrapped around his head. The sixth verse describes Jonah going even deeper into the heart of the earth as he descends to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars being around him forever is yet another description for the environment of Sheol as a whole. Keep in mind that the whole time his soul was descending, his body was already swallowed up by the great fish for safekeeping. God mercifully guarded his body so that it wouldn't get destroyed by other marine predators. The latter sequence of verse 6 switches tenses on us, and we see that Jonah remarks that Yahweh brought his life up from the pit. The pit, as we already saw in the Strong's Concordance, is yet another reference to the compartment within the heart of the earth, which by now we recognize as bearing the name Sheol. Verse 7, yet again, describes Jonah's soul as fainting away and him remembering Yahweh, and that his prayer was presented to Yahweh where he dwells in his holy place. Jonah displays his allegiance to God in verses 8 and 9, while asserting that idols are nothing and that his salvation comes from Yahweh. As you and I know, brothers and sisters, Yahweh's source of our salvation is by way of his resurrected immortal son, Yahweh's true and only agent of our salvation, which comes via the resurrection of our own souls from out of Sheol. Finally, in the last sentence of verse 10, Yahweh commands the fish to spew Jonah up onto dry land so that he could perform his initial objective at Nineveh. Folks, Yahweh resurrected Jonah's soul from out of Sheol after his being took up residency there for three days and three nights. Jonah's mortal body came back to life, just like Lazarus and several others in the scriptures who died and were brought back to life. This is the sign of Jonah that our Messiah was referring to. Jonah died. Yeshua died. Jonah's soul descended to Sheol. Yeshua's soul descended to Sheol. Jonah's body was preserved for three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish. Yeshua's body was preserved by being wrapped with linen and spices 
and then stored within Joseph of Arimathea's sepulcher for three days and three nights. Jonah's soul was mercifully taken from out of Sheol, placed back into his corrupted mortal body, and then was spat back up onto dry land. Yeshua's soul was released from Sheol due to his sinless life of obedience unto death, and was placed into an immortal firstfruits incorruptible body. Jonah was seen by men after his experience, and he likely told many people all about what happened to him. Messiah was seen by many people after his experience, and they witnessed firsthand the fullness of the sign of Jonah. Talk about the best possible sign. I hope that you've been blessed by the content of this video, and as always, stay the course, run the race, and continue to hang on his words. Sorry, guys, I was still on mute. All right. Um, yeah, sorry about that. I'm back now. So basically, as we see, the sign of Jonah is simply the resurrection. And this is what Yeshua exemplified after being in the grave three days, three nights. And the people that Yeshua is talking to in Matthew 16, he's actually, this is the people he said, you know, he, he gives this sign to. And they are not having it. They're not listening to him. That's why he says um, that's the only sign they'll be given is the sign of Jonah. But unfortunately, the people that he's talking to are the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they're not they're not really believing him anyway, which is the sad part. But I think we see it. I think it's in Matthew 27 where we see when that time comes that he does resurrect and he is talking to the people uh, about, you know, I'm alive. He's re revealing himself to Mary and the disciples and people are hearing that they can't find the body, um, the centurions are afraid they report back and then the pharisees immediately start scheming that oh well the his disciples must have stolen the body and that's you know that's funny because i think that's actually one of the arguments in islam even of today is is they claim that his body was stolen or that he was switched before and someone else went on the cross i can't remember i think uh, I, I don't remember which arguments theirs but um the point is like that's the the lies that the, that the pharisees and sadducees immediately made up once they saw the sign that he promised him still carries on to today. And that's, that's wild. But the fact that he's telling them, look, he's, you know, he knows that they're broods of vipers, they're liars, they're murderers they're slanderers, you know, they're, they're, um, they're not shepherds, they're corrupt shepherds. Right. And that they're, um, he knows who he's talking to because they're not doing, they don't have the heart of the father. They're not doing the father's behavior. And that's why he transitions after this statement to the Pharisees. He's going to transition into the next statement in Matthew 16, 5 through 12, where he says, And the disciples came to the other side of the sea, but they had forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus said to them, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they began to discuss this among themselves, saying, He said that because we didn't bring any bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, you men of little faith, why do you discuss amongst yourselves that you have no bread? Do you not understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many basketfuls you picked up? Or the seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many large baskets full you picked up? How is it that you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread, but beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees? Then they understood that he did not say to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So this is also sometimes we see in, in certain Torah observant circles, people start trying to eat 
you know, all unleavened bread, but here is, you know, a classic example that that's only on a specific occasion for Passover. Normally it's fine. Um, it's a natural, it's a natural part of, of life. And so, uh, he's basically telling them at this point, look, it's their teachings. He, that's what he says in verse 12. It is their teachings that you need to be aware of. And that's what he's trying to help them understand. So this is where we see paralleled in chat in Mark and in other places where he's this, he's exposing their teachings as the leaven he's referring to here in Mark seven, eight through 13, Jesus is uh, speaking to the Pharisees and he says, neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. He was also saying to them, you're experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father and mother is to be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or his mother, whatever I have that would help you is Corbin, that is to say it's been given to God, you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother, thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you've handed down. And you do many things such as that. That's this is also what Paul is referring to in Galatians 1.14, where he's uh, speaking to the Galatians, reminding him of his past when he used to be a Pharisee uh, in Judaism. And he says, And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my counter contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. And we see, of course, what that led to in the book of Acts, where he was a part of the, the brute squad that's stoning Stephen. So just like the brute squad that, you know, slandered Yeshua unto the cross. And this is um, this is basically the leaven of the Pharisees. It's their teaching, as we see, that they are setting aside the commandments in favor of their traditions. And so what I've actually done here on this graphic, this is something I made a while back for Torah Apologetic series, but this is an actual graphic that I put together. I went through the entire New Testament and I counted and I said, you know, how many times do we see in the scriptures, in the New Testament, where the Pharisees, there's negative mentions where the Pharisees twisted, rejected, or persecuted the law of God in these places, in these verses, or its surrounding context. And so, as you can see here, there's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Acts, all those passages there. If anyone wants to screenshot this and check this later, you're welcome to, but it's a lot to go through. There's a ton of mentions. I believe it was 127 mentions from Matthew to Revelation in the New Testament that basically they're they're rejecting, twisting, or persecuting those who keep the law of God. So these guys are not to be looked up to for your authority and any kind of theological training or discipleship. And I would extend this to our modern day today through rabbinic Judaism because it's the same cult. It's the same people. They've been around this whole time. They didn't go anywhere. They just... You know, they just got trickier. They're a brood of vipers. It's a cult. Um, it, it is, it, uh, like I've said before, it's it's basically they hold up the Torah as if they're actually doing it, but then they do something else. It's trickery. It's just like Catholicism. <laughs> it's, they hold up the faith in Christ, but then they teach you other stuff. You know, it's just, it's doctrines of demons, to be honest with you, because it's antithetical to the, keeping the actual commandments of God. And this is the leaven of the Pharisees. So let's keep going, though. And we also see the opposite of the, of the leaven of the Pharisees here in Acts 21.20, where we see um, 
Paul comes back from his journey and the other disciples that heard about the converts he makes. And he says, and when they heard it, they began glorifying God. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed and they're all zealous for the law. Now compare and contrast this with what we read in Galatians 1.14, where um, Paul is saying that he was in his former manner of life in Judaism, which he abandoned to go after Christ. In his former way of life in Judaism, he was zealous for the traditions of his uh, of his fathers. So this is a difference because this is the converts that Paul's making who are now zealous for the law. And that's exactly what Yeshua was teaching everyone he went around because obviously Yeshua was zealous for the actual commandments of God, which is the behavior of the father. That's why he did it perfectly. And that's what he's teaching everywhere he goes, as you've been experiencing me break down in exegesis throughout this entire book of Matthew. So this is the point where Paul, a disciple of Yeshua, is going out and teaching his converts to keep the law of God. And this is him talking about it with the other disciples in Jerusalem when he came back from Pentecost uh, because he's keeping the law. So this is a, a beautiful moment of the opposite of the leaven of the Pharisees. This is the moment where you are zealous for the actual behavior of the creator and you want to do it yourself. And so here we see also in Matthew 16, 13 through 20, Jesus goes on to say, Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, and others, Elijah, but still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, Why do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. The gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on the earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. Okay, so in this passage, we're looking at him. He's talking, he, he introduces this conversation to his disciples about the Son of Man. And how, where did he get this information about who the son of man is and what, why would he even ask him this? Shouldn't they already know? Not necessarily guys. Remember what we've been talking about, how through the, the bulk of Matthew that we've been exposing the bad teaching of the Pharisees, how he is sad that the, like back in Matthew chapter nine, where it says that he looked out, he saw them as sheep without shepherds. They were not being taught the actual law and the prophets. They're being bombarded with Judaism and traditions, a burden they couldn't bear, as he explains in Matthew 23, 4. So he's actually trying to teach them the law of God, and that's why he's getting all this hate from the Pharisees, because they were bad teachers that were corrupting everything. So he goes on to, to mention this term. And what's fascinating is some of the other disciples' first attempts, uh, just guessing, right, this idea that, you know, oh, maybe he's Elijah, maybe he's Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Guys, we see this type of speculation from Judaism still today. They refuse to acknowledge that Jesus, Yeshua of Nazareth, was the actual Messiah, that he already came. So therefore they think, oh, well, it's going to be another great prophet that the Father will send us. That's literally what they teach still today. This is them repeating the same teaching 2,000 years ago. The teaching of the Pharisees, the leaven of the Pharisees. Yeshua is still getting out of his disciples, the leaven of the Pharisees. And I contend with you that he doesn't even complete the process 
before he dies, because we still see the leaven of the Pharisees in Peter in Acts chapter 10. And it requires a vision from angels with an explanation to help him get out more leaven of the Pharisees on how he was, you know, prejudicially treating Gentiles. So this is Yeshua still doing this, but the Son of Man references where he's even getting this to bring this conversation up. It's coming from multiple places from the Law and the Prophets. One of those prophets is Enoch here in 1 Enoch 46, 1 through 4. We see this terminology used historically for the first time. And there I saw one who had a head of days, and his head was white like wool, and with him was another being whose countenance had the appearance of a man, and his face was full of graciousness, like one of the holy angels. And I asked the angel who went with me and showed me all the hidden things concerning that son of man, who he was, and where, when he was, and why he went with the head of days. And he answered and said unto me, This is the Son of Man who has righteousness, with whom dwells righteousness, and who reveals all the treasures of that which is hidden, because the Lord of Spirits has chosen him, whose lot has the preeminence before the Lord of Spirits, in uprightness forever. And this Son of Man, who you have seen, shall rise up the kings and the mighty from their seats, that means to dethrone them, and the strong from their thrones, and shall loosen the reins of the strong, and break the teeth of the sinners. It goes on to say, um, verses 5 through 8, He shall put down the kings from their thrones and kingdoms, because they do not extol and praise him, nor humbly acknowledge when the kingdom was bestowed upon them. He shall put down, he shall put down the countenance of the strong, and shall fill them with shame. And darkness shall be their dwelling, and worms shall be their bed. They shall have no hope of rising from their beds, because they do not extol the name of the Lord of Spirits. And these are they who judge the stars of heaven, and raise their hand against the Most High, and tread upon the earth, and dwell upon it. And all their deeds manifest unrighteousness, and their power rests upon their riches. They faint, and their fame, the, excuse me, and their faith, uh, I apologize, this is a typo, and their faith in the gods which they've made with their hands, and they deny the name of the Lord of Spirits, and they persecute the house of his congregations, and the faithful who hang upon the name of the Lord of Spirits. So here we have this idea of the Son of Man being referenced in First Enoch and in context, that's why I read the whole chapter or the whole passage there, in context of the actual job of the Messiah to create peace on earth, to judge the kings of the earth, as we see in Matthew 25, um, to actually do what's promised to the Messiah. And it calls him the Son of Man. So this is why it would be such a big question for Yeshua to want to make sure, because remember, he's getting close to the crucifixion concept or the, the timeline. So he wants to make sure that his disciples know all these core ideas and understand this core theology. So this is the point where if all of them had any access to Enoch's writings, which they did back then, then that's why they would even know how to answer where this term comes from. Now, we also see this term mentioned in Daniel 7, 13 through 14. And it has a very similar but much shorter description of what we just read from from First Enoch. Here in Daniel 7, 13 and 14, it says, And I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So here we have, like I said before, previous context from Matthew 16 is Matthew 9, where Yeshua is constantly addressing the bad teachings of the Pharisees, and he looks upon the people of whom he pulled his disciples, the same people that he chose disciples out of, and he says that they 
are sheep without shepherds, meaning they're not getting good instructions in the law of God and the prophets. They're not getting good understanding of scripture. This is exactly what we talked about in episode one of this in Matthew one through three, where he talked to, where I explained the, the terminology from Isaiah chapter nine about how Yeshua is spoken of and prophesied as a light that shines upon Naphtali and Zebulon. He brings the light of actual teaching truth from the Torah upon a land that was in darkness, people sitting in darkness, blinded, because they were, did not receive the light of good teaching of the Torah. They were receiving other things, the leaven of the Pharisees. So this is all connected, guys. This, this context is all connected here. So this is where Matthew 16, 24 through 28, Yeshua goes on. And then he says, then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and will then repay every man according to his deeds. Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is a huge statement. A lot of people really struggle with this statement. So as I said at the beginning of the broadcast, one of the most fundamental ways that we find context in Scripture is just to look up the definitions of words. Guys, translators are not beyond their bias. Translators, when they take a word from one language to another, and that language in original Greek or Hebrew has multiple applications depending on the context, that means that the translator has the inherent responsibility of knowing the context of what's being said to give the proper translation of that word. So when you really start digging into scripture and looking at the definitions of words and comparing translations and then keeping it in the context of what's being said and talked about, very often you'll find some very questionable translation uh, insertions. And so this is why many times you'll even see italicized words in like the modern NASB and some certain translations, because that's where the translator has inserted a word because he's doing his best to make sense of the sentence that he translated because the word he chose to put in the translation either is vague or he doesn't quite understand it. So he inserts a word. They usually put it in italics to be helpful, but that is supposed to help bring better clarity to what he thinks it's saying as it's being translated. So the good news is it doesn't change big theology, but in a case like this, where we're reading in verse 28, Matthew 16, 28, 16, 28. And a lot of people wonder what in the world does he mean that, there's some of those who are standing here who will not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Well, hopefully, you already know what the Son of Man is and what it means to come in his kingdom. We just read it from 1 Tenoch 46 and Daniel 7. But also, let's look at the actual word in the Greek that's being translated for the word until. That's this, this word that's being used as a conjunction, as if it's swapping one thing for another. But instead, there's it can be used as a preposition. And this is what we see in Strong's Concordance 2193. It is the word hios, which can mean till or until. See, you guys know the difference, right? Like some people think, well, oh, till and until, are they are they the same thing? But some sometimes the word until can be used both as a conjunction and also as a preposition. So for all you, you know, grammar, English word nerds out there, hopefully you know the difference there. So additional definition uses of this word is as a preposition, which can mean as far as, or up to, or as much as. 
you see there's so let's let's play a fun game and let's actually put the other alternate translations that could have been used but was not chosen to be used in this passage and let's read it again so it says truly i say to you there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death up to they see the son of man coming in his kingdom sounds very different doesn't it actually puts a time qualifier in there doesn't it? it's very interesting Another one says, truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death as far as they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. What does it mean to taste death? Yeshua tells us already in the previous context in Matthew 9 about what it means to taste death and what he means when he's talking. By the word, by the way, the word taste in the in the Greek just it also means experience. It's like an idiomatic use of the word taste. Um, so Matthew 9, 18 through 19. He references death in a conversation where he means one thing and everybody else thinks he means something else. What kind of death is he talking about? Let's look at it. It says, while he was saying these things to them, a synagogue official came and bowed down before him and said, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. Jesus got up and began to follow him. So did his disciples. And then further on down in 23 through 26, he gets to their house as Jesus came into the official's house and saw the food players and the crowd in noisy disorder. He said, leave, for the girl has not died, but is asleep. And they began laughing at him. But when the crowd had been sent out, he entered and took her by the hand, and the girl got up. This news spread all throughout all that land. So some people try to make the, the argument here that he's just that she was just in a coma. She wasn't actually dead. These people knew when a person was dead. This was, this was not them, like... Since time has began, people know when they're looking at a dead body. And I know a lot of people maybe jump into the comments and say, oh, no, there's been people that have woken up in morgues and things like that. And they just had a really low pulse and a heart rate and all that kind of stuff. And Yeshua is backing up with this statement what is expounded upon in great depth in the Old Testament, which could probably be its own show. I don't have time to go into all the verses tonight, but it's the idea that you are asleep. In Sheol, when you die in this body, this fleshly body that's made of dirt, it's called the first death. It's not the second death. And the first death is referred to in an idiomatic reference as sleeping or resting. This is why Yeshua says she's not dead. She's asleep. And he can raise her right back up, raise her back to life. He's talking about the reference of him saying she's not dead, meaning she's not, and that actual word in the Greek has alternate definitions as well, one of them being perished, which is something that can easily be referred to as the second death, which is what he's talking about in Matthew 16, 28, where he's referring to those who will not see or taste death up to he comes in his kingdom up to that moment or as far as he comes in. So meaning they will not taste the second death. This is, this is the only death you need to worry about. Remember what he says in Matthew 10, previous context of this of this book, Matthew 10, 28, he says, do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill your soul. Instead, fear God who can kill both your body and your soul in the lake of fire. What are we told in Matthew 20 uh, verses 11 through 15, excuse me, 15, yeah, 15 through 19 is that the lake of fire is the second death. So we have in Matthew 10, verse 28, Yeshua is telling us that the death is called this, that you should fear is called the second death. 
Here, he's telling those, some of you standing here, will not taste death up to or even till the coming of the Son of Man. Why? Because they're destined for the resurrection, which happens at his coming when he comes with his kingdom. It's the day of the Lord. That's what we talk about emphatically on this channel. It's the gospel of the kingdom of God. Yeshua is preaching the explanation of people in Sheol waiting for resurrection, the place that Jonah went, right? The place that he that Yeshua went for three days and three nights, the heart of the earth. Yeshua is preaching this idea right here in Matthew 16, 28. Explaining to his disciples and whoever was standing around. <laughs> well, we obviously know that, that Judas at this point was standing there and it's highly debated whether or not he'll actually be in the kingdom. Um, he may be actually, he may actually taste uh, the second death. You know, he actually tastes death. But the others, he says, there are some of you standing here who will not taste death um, until they see the Son of Man come in his kingdom. That's that's right. They will not because they're going to be asleep. Then they're resurrected to eternal life when they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is what Paul talks about in 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, 4, verse 13 through 18, where he says that the dead in Christ will rise and those who are alive in man will be caught up together with him in the air to meet him at his coming. The Lord is descending and we're being taken up by the angels in resurrection to be stowed away in the new Jerusalem while the Lord's coming down with warrior angels to battle the wicked on the day of the Lord, which is what we just read from 1 Enoch 46. So this whole idea is that Yeshua is preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God everywhere he goes. But there's details, there's component pieces within that message, and he's explaining them in all these different ways. And so this is just another one of those moments where he's explaining the resurrection that happens on the day of the Lord that leads up to him coming to his kingdom. And that's why some of them will not taste death while he's there. So ultimately, that's it. Thank you for uh, thank you for joining me through these through these slides hopefully as we've been going through the Matthew 16 and and all of Matthew hopefully it's been you know encouraging and a blessing to you and hopefully these videos will become a good resource tool for you to have discussions with friends and family so they get excited about the word but as always we'll do a Q&A at the end of our podcasts if you have any questions just put them in all caps and then that way i can see them <clears throat> Sorry, my, my voice is giving me some trouble already tonight. Yes, this is the this is the the actual wonderful moment where we um, remember in Isaiah sixty one. It says, "Arise, awake, O sleeper! The glory of the light of God shines upon you." Yeah, it will be amazing to wake up to be taken up to the kingdom. Absolutely. So guys, if you have any questions, uh, thank you, David Shear. If you have any questions, just put them in all caps, try to make it concise and thorough so I can understand your question. And that way, you know, we can give you a good answer if possible. Okay. Stephen Schofield is asking, can you give me your impression of what the rock is that Yeshua built his kingdom on? My impression, it's, um, well, as he tells us in that passage, uh, that it's going to be Peter. So this is, this is the rock. I mean, he was, he was um, named Cephas, was I guess one of his alternate names, which actually means rock. So that's uh, Peter was, you know, an integral part, an integral part of uh, the gospel being spread. We see him stand up and give a wonderful message on the day of Pentecost. Uh, seems to be the person that was highlighted as, you know, in a leadership position in, in Acts 2. 
to you know give a great sermon cause a lot of people to come to faith in Christ and be converted from amongst his brethren the Jews not even from Gentiles these are all of his Jewish scattered brethren that had come back for the feast of Pentecost in that moment to Jerusalem so that's a it's a powerful powerful moment of him showing exemplifying leadership and expanding um, the relevance of Yeshua's priesthood being the Messiah which would it was what makes sense to Jews as I talked about last night. Uh, which is why he talks about it in, in Acts chapter 2 in his message in verses 32, 32 and 33. So, yeah, that's it's definitely Peter, in my opinion. That's a good question, brother. All right. Uh, West Plays Music is asking, is First Chronicles 17, 10 through 14 about Yeshua? So let's go look that up, brother. I'm not sure. Chronicles is, is one um, one book that I need to get to know a lot better. I'm going to put it on screen for one to read together. All right. So you said 1 Chronicles 17, 10 through 14. Looks like it's in the, in the middle of a lot of context. But it says uh, 10 through 14 says, Even from the day that I command judges to be over my people Israel, and I was to do all your enemies, moreover, I tell you that the Lord will build a house for you when your days are fulfilled, that you must go to be with your fathers, that I'll set up one of your descendants after you, who will be one of your sons. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build for me a house, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. And I will not take my loving kindness away from him as I took it from him who was before you. But I will settle him in my house, in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. So this is Nathan uh, talking to David and prophecy. And yeah, I mean, in my understanding, it absolutely is about Yeshua. I think uh, I don't know if there's some discrepancy. I want to say that I've heard people try to try to bring this up as a point of discrepancy, but um, to me, this is there's only one person that that is in the moniker of the kingdom uh, of the kingship of David. As I talked about last night, it was a common thing for um, kingdoms in the Old Testament to use the moniker of David, or to use the moniker of a great king of their nation, and then the like leaders that came after them would try to take that same moniker. That's why you had like multiple Cyruses, multiple Nebuchadnezzars, you had um, multiple um, Xerxes, um, Pharaohs, right? We have in modern days, you have multiple czars in Russia. Um, so they would just, people knew they had another name, but like they took on this moniker because it was supposedly like the first time that someone, whoever had that name originally, they were a great king with lots of respect and honor. So many times we see this, this terminology used in, in the Hebrew scriptures, speaking of David and the promise to David that this wonderful ruler that's established forever would come from his house, the house of David, which is an idiomatically a reference or a synonym, synonym, excuse me, synonymous reference for the kingdom or the kingship of David, the, uh, the throne of David. So we see that a lot. Hope that's a good answer for you, brother. Okay, it looks like. John Williams is asking, is Zechariah 14, 3 through 4 an agent or judge or the most high of armies? Um, well, Zechariah 4, 14 is the, the day of the Lord. And I mean, the whole chapter, the day of the Lord stuff. We'll pull it up, though, for, for everyone to read along. And I'm going to tell you, it's, it's Messiah who is the agent. He is the arm, the mighty arm of the Father that sent to do the actual dirty work, if I could put it like that, on the day of the Lord. So, which is this day of um, 
of, of fighting and darkness that Zechariah 14 mentioned. So let's pull this up and look at it together, brother. So let's start in verse 1. And uh, it says, Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. That's never happened yet. And the city will be captured, the houses plundered, the women ravished, and half of the city exiled. But the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. And then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley, so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. And in my understanding and my opinion, by the way, this is what is prophesied in Isaiah chapter 43 and 4. John the Baptist is repeating this prophecy in um, Matthew 3, I think it's verses uh, 5 and 6, and then also... Um, this is referenced in Revelation 16, 18. This is in Nahum 1, 7. This is all over the place. This is the actual moment of this massive earthquake that's happening on the day of the Lord. That is literally there's the 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 place of the, where the New Jerusalem is going to sit down. The place that's been promised Abraham from the Euphrates to the Nile is going to be a massive earthquake that's going to flatten out and level out everything <laughs> so that it can become a proper foundation for this house to sit down. So that's why I think you're seeing this description of a very large valley that's being spread out from north to south in this uh, in this regard um, from those two places. And so, uh, yes, this is, to answer your question, it's an agent and, and a judge. And it's the son who's a high priest who's being used in agency of his father. He's doing what his father sent him to do. But yes, in a judge sense, he is judging with vengeance, but he's also a judge because he's high priest forever, right? In the Melchizedek order. So yeah, it's, um, it's a good question, brother. Okay. So let's see. NEG is asking a Trinitarian question. Um, I know that you may not be asking specifically for a Trinitarian answer, but this is where this, uh, this is where this, this question derives is from Trinitarian theology and all the eisegetical speculation that has arose from Trinitarian language, much of it deriving from the third and fourth century AD from what became the early Catholic priests and uh, apologists, people like Irenaeus, not Irenaeus, but um, Origen and people like uh, Justin Martyr, no, not quite Justin Martyr. Yeah, I take that back. Yeah, Justin Martyr did have a lot of, uh, a lot of Trinitarian ideal even though he was in the mid second century, but he had a lot of, a lot of infusion of this speculation um, that the angel of the Lord must have been Jesus. And that's where that caught on and it turned into uh, one of the stalwarts of Trinitarian theology, which is also what we see from the sixth century AD with the first book of Adam and Eve um, that we just recently reviewed on honor King season three. And that's where this terminology is. This angel of the Lord, who's also the word of the Lord, is constantly showing up all over the New Testament, and it must be a pre-incarnate Yeshua. But you have multiple scriptures in First Enoch and other places that the word of the Lord, which is Yeshua in John chapter 1, but in the Old Testament, it's, it's, not, um, it, it's referred to as angelic visitations because the Son of Man is not revealed to mankind until the appointed time. He's actually in the bosom of the Father uh, in heaven, and he's only sent once 
This is the storyline of the Messiah. He doesn't just come around and interact on the earth. And some people even say that it, it was, you know, he was the Melchizedek in Genesis 14, just a king over Salem, just hanging out on the earth and having a kingship. No, he was destined to come twice. The first time he came was the first time he came. <laughs> the second time he comes is going to be the last time he comes. And he'll be on earth forever, ruling as king and high priest. So, um, it's a there's that's a common idea that people try to because they don't understand agencies in general to know that the messages of the of Yahweh, which is referred to idiomatically as the word of the Lord, is brought by his servants, as Psalm 74 and Hebrews chapter 114 talk about his servants who are ministering angels of fire. These are why they're created is to come and be servants to him and his his will, his design, his messengers to keep the creation, and we are part of that creation day six that the angels of heaven made on day one communicate his messages to us because we can't go up there and he can't come down here so a lot of people have just tried to expect when i i say that until the new jerusalem arrives then he can exist down here because of the way the new jerusalem will be able to encapsulate his glory so that we're not all destroyed because of the walls of the city but um but until then he can't just come hang out that's why even Moses had to be put in the cleft of the rock because of the great power we did descend a little bit and bowed the heavens, as uh, Psalm 78 talks about in Exodus, uh, Exodus 33, uh, Exodus 32, excuse me. But this whole concept of, of him trying to even exist around us, we would all die. So therefore, he has to send agents, which are his angels, that come down with his words, the word of the Lord, his messages to us. This is why it was such a big deal if an angel wasn't here um, to give a message that he would speak to his prophets in some regard. And many times his prophets would get their information from an angel, but then it was also this unique communication method of the linen ephod that the high priest wore, who was also a messenger of the Most High, as we see explained to us in Malachi chapter 2, verse 8. And this, these priests wearing the linen ephod with the Urim and the Thummim, they had the ability, I don't know how it worked, but according to scripture, it seems like they had an actual connection to, to get answers from the Most High without an angel or without a prophet, and therefore they can make decisions of discernment and justice and truth. And so, you know, it's a, it, it's, it's not a pre-incarnate Yeshua. It's not. Um, Okay, anyway, um hope that's a good answer for you, brother. Okay, looking for another quick question. Let's put it in all caps. I think I missed one earlier up. Uh, Royce Bill's asking about the name Yeshua, which it's truly, I think Yeshua is actually the um, Aramaic version of Yehoshua in the original Paleo-Hebrew, as far as I understand. So, But it does mean Yahweh's salvation, or He is salvation, or He saves, whatever. Um, you know, kind of application you want to give around that phraseology because that's that's literally what it means, a salvation. And so it's an appropriate name for our Messiah, who is a high priest. And uh, he says, could the Yeshua, because the name Yeshua or the Yeshua name in the strongest recordings he has saved has to do with crucifixion. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, it's wonderful foretelling, foreshadowing, imagery of the future, like a, you know, that little hinting that the Father constantly puts in there because he's constantly telling you what he's going to do. And he wants to give you as much inclination to understand what he's going to do as possible. He'll directly tell you, but then he gives you all these other hints to help lead your mind in case you don't understand his direct words. Because, you know, that's a, that's a thing. We still see this happening all the time. In fact, I run into this daily 
where I, you know, I, I will explain scriptures, clear cut, plainly worded scriptures, and people will read them and interact with me and repeat them back to me, and then they'll not they'll not believe them. And it was something else in the word that an inkling or a hinting or something else that was like a very minute uh, supplementary explanation of what was already clearly worded and stated. But it was that supplementary little thing that got them to actually trigger their brain and kind of unlock and open their eyes to that clearly worded statement. You know, deception is a unique thing on the human mind. Cognitive dissonance is a unique thing. Fear of man and the pressure it puts on your perception, how you filter stuff. It's a unique thing. You know, it's to me, it's one of the most fascinating psychological things to study amongst mankind, because if we could all get past it, we could just believe God's words and be at peace and do his will, you know, but it's, it is the, uh, the fallen state of man to have all these, these fear filters that are within us that are so hard to just believe what he's plainly spoken. And, um, so that's, yeah, man, that's, um, I'm sorry. I'm kind of going off on a different tangent for you, but I hope that's, <laughs> that's a good answer for you. All right, guys, put, if you have any questions, put them in all caps. Yeah, you're welcome, Minnie G. I appreciate you, brother. Good to see you back. Okay, I think I missed another question. Um, yeah, a big Ray G is asking about, have you heard or seen anything about the prophets? Kevin? No, I haven't, brother. I'm sorry. Okay. All right, guys. Here's here's what you guys need to do. If you're enjoying this video, hit the like button. And I also want to just um, I just also want to encourage everyone. We have um, we've been you know I'll be working on it. I was in a meeting earlier. We'll be in a meeting later, and it's something that I'm actively working on during the day. In addition to making these studies, is we're working on Lighthouse, and it's it's something that's coming. If you if you're upset with the strange censorship, political and religious censorship you're seeing on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter, then be encouraged. Lighthouse is coming. It is. Lighthouse is coming. Mr. Bear is asking, Sean, if you say that Peter is the rock he built the church on, who is the cornerstone? Well, it's Yeshua, of course. And this is uh, the cornerstone that the builders rejected. So this is uh, there's a difference between an idiomatic reference to someone being the rock on which you would build a, you know, uh, a, go a, a concept going forward, as opposed to um, the cornerstone that you know ties the architectural framework of. Of a building together both are metaphors but they're different metaphors and different applications so it's it's the context that matters i guess but yeah we we know through scripture he shows the cornerstone that the builders rejected hebrews i think it's hebrews 12 and then also uh but cephas which means the rock specifically is what's told to us in matthew 16 that he's what yeshua says i'll, I'll build my rock or build my church on i can go back and read it for you guys real quick if if we're struggling with this that's at the end of the chapter um, I'll screen share this for everyone. Yeah, so here he says, um, because in this part, 
this is where, like I said, the, the other disciples were guessing and they were kind of guessing wrong, but Peter guessed correctly. And Yeshua is excited saying flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my father in heaven. Um, and so therefore he says in verse 18, I also say to you that you are Peter and upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. So some people will say, well, wait, he's not speaking about Peter. He's speaking about what this rock is. He pointing to himself and saying this rock, I'll build my church. Um, but Yeshua leaves. He doesn't actually build the, the ecclesia that follows. You see what I mean? There's, there's a difference there. And what rock are they standing on? They're in Caesarea Philippi. Do they literally start the church at the base of the mountain of Caesarea Philippi next to the, the uh, temple to Pan that's built into the rock side? <laughs> no. No, because Peter starts and all of it starts from Jerusalem, as we see in Acts chapter 2. Um, now, again, th this is not dispensational theology. This is not me saying that the church wasn't around and, and that the church is something somehow different from believers in the Old Testament. The Ecclesia has always been there. It's everyone who believes in faith and obedience. It is why there are disciples mentioned as being disciples of John the Baptist before Yeshua and the uh in the Acts 2 moment and all that kind of stuff. Before Yeshua even picked his disciples, you had Elijah had disciples, as we read in um, First First Chronicles, I think it's chapter 21. So you have a lot of um you have a, you have this, we have to, I guess, I'm not saying you're doing it, but a lot of people would hear my answer and they'll say, Well, are already talking about dispensation theology, supersessionism, which is the church replaced Israel. No, I'm not. We're just simply talking about this moment going forward where suddenly there's going to be an explosion of growth. Remember what we're dealing with, the context of the, everything we've read so far in the life of Jesus. These Pharisees, as he as we're going to go over in Matthew 23, when Yeshua reprimands them for going abroad to, over the sea and ships to make converts, to make proselytes. So the Pharisees are trying to make disciples too. They're going out through Asia Minor, through, the, through all the places that we see the disciples, after Yeshua ascends to heaven, we see the disciples go out and make converts. The Pharisees are going out and making converts too. They're constantly running around trying to steal new disciples and make their own disciples and in, in, into the cult of Judaism. You see what I'm saying? It's it's very, very different. There's believers. So the, the difference is truly teaching them the word of God, the actual commandments of God and how to obey in that so they can walk in peace and, and joy. This is what we see this great group of people coming up to Pentecost from all these different nations and surroundings. These were all scattered Jews from the Northern and Southern house previously being scattered five, 600 years earlier by both the Assyrian Kings and the Nebuchadnezzar later, they're still out there hanging out. And this is what we, we went over. Um, I think last week when I did my, I think it was number 40, 40, I did my self-defense uh, video through persecution. And, I talk about second. I talk about Ezra, Esther chapter eight in the Septuagint that gives us better explanation of what was actually happening when Mordecai through Artaxerxes was allowed to put this decree out to all the 127 provinces where all the scattered Jews were throughout all the regions from Ethiopia to India, and tell them they could practice the law, <laughs> which he calls righteous and just law. And that they were not to receive persecution, they could even defend themselves while they did it. And it says in those passages in, in Esther 8 13 in the Septuagint, they created, or excuse me, 13 through 17, they created converts as they were doing this because people were even getting of the Gentiles. The Gentiles are being converted, 
during the days of Esther, from all these different regions and lands and nations, becoming Jews, even getting circumcised, because they were doing the commandments of God, putting their faith in Yahweh, believing the gospel of the kingdom of God, which is the message of the prophets, and following the righteous law and behavior. This was allowed because of the circumstances that transpired during the book of Esther. So this carries up to a whole bunch of turmoil. Then you get into the days of the Maccabees in the second century BC, 400 years later, three and a half to 400 years later, where there's still an incredible amount of zealous people throughout Samaria and Judea and all the surrounding nations that want to do what's right. They want to serve God. Here come the Pharisees. And this is stuff that I'm going to be detailing in great detail in Identity Crisis uh, Part 2. But long story short, by the time we get to Yeshua's day, you still got people abroad all over the Middle East and the countries surrounding it that are scattered brethren. But for whatever reason, in my opinion, it's because they knew the gospel of the kingdom of God. That would be the reason. That's why they all just didn't try to move back into Judea. But they are coming back for the feasts as they as they're allowed, as they can. And as, as we see in Julius 48, if you're too far away and you can't make it back for the feast, then that's, you know, you're, you're not guilty. You're not at fault. It's not a transgression of any kind. But this is why in Acts chapter 20 and, and Acts chapter 18, we see Paul trying to come back from Ephesus and from Asia Minor to get back for the feast in, in, in time, if it's possible. He's trying. But um, because he was zealous for the law, right? He was wanting to do God's behavior. But there was all these scattered brethren, and then they were making converts. And this was a concept that was growing over time. The enemy's trying to squash it as much as they can. So by the time you get the fulfillment of the storyline through Yeshua, stepping into his ascended role of high priest, which is what was prophesied of him, that's what they can explain to all these people that are converts coming in for the feast and the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, which is what Peter does. And they're, they're filled with joy and exuberance. Because now they understand that he is he has fulfilled this, this wonderful piece of the puzzle of the story that he has come. And now they have a great high priest and mediator because the, the priests and the mediators at the temple were corrupted and they all knew it. They were living through it. Just like the, in the days of uh, Ahab, in the days of uh, Manasseh, just like in the days which leads up to the days of Ezekiel was Zedekiah where the priesthood was corrupted also and the people knew it. There was a faithful remnant, but the... You know, they had to deal with this corrupt priesthood. Jesus is dealing with the same kind of concept in his day. So all the faithful people that truly are trying to learn the law of God and they know the difference of behaviors. And just like we see, you know, uh, there's so many examples. I mean, gosh, it's, it's probably a whole nother podcast. But and I apologize for taking a long answer to you. But, brother, there's just so much beauty in understanding that. um this idea that Yeshua is is taking this moment, the, the the why I guess is the big question of delineating with your question of who's who's this metaphorical rock and who's the metaphorical cornerstone. Scripture tells us who the metaphorical cornerstone is, and he's telling us right here in verse eighteen that who the metaphorical rock is upon whom this church would be built. We see that come to fruition in Acts chapter two, and why it's such a big deal is because of all the circumstances for the last four or 500 years that led up to the moment of Acts chapter two. And because of Yeshua's ascending to heaven to his high priest role, where he can drop the spirit as he wills, which is what Peter says he does in Acts 2, 32 through 33. To make it such an amazing day, 3000 people get saved in one message. Guess what? They're going to go back home after that. After Pentecost is over, Pentecost is a one day feast. They're going to go back home after that. And now they have, 
an amazing moment in history. They can express through these disciples, these law-observant, understood, wise disciples that they ran into, and all this this story floating around Jerusalem about the Messiah who they killed and has resurrected and it appeared to over 500 people and they're hearing all the testimonies of all this. And then they see the drop of the spirit, which they would recognize from numbers chapter 11. And then they go back, they go back to their place of, of where they lived and they, they can tell everybody just like we see in, in Esther chapter eight, they can tell others and they can convert others with sound doctrine. It's the, so the church spreads, explodes at this point, which is why the Roman Empire starts clamping down. And, you know, the Antichrist filled uh, Caesars start just going on, you know, killing sprees. So this is the enemy trying to stop it as fast as it's growing, which it just, you know, this is, they realized they couldn't actually stop it. So they were just going to join it and twist it from the inside, which is where the Catholic Church came from. So anyway, I'm, I'm going, I'm going off on the, going off on a whole nother show, but uh, hopefully, hopefully that's a, a good answer for your brother. All right. I'm gonna take one last question and I got to sign off for tonight. I just want to say thank you to everyone that's, that's uh, joined me tonight. I think I missed some going up while I was talking. Yes, William, you're right. That's, that's one of the, one of the ways that they were able to put down um, what we have as the gospels today. Uh, okay. Royce, Royce Bell is asking thanks for Do you think Sunday law is the mark of the beast? No, no, I don't. Um, personally, I think the mark of the beast, it, there's a qualifier guys, and I'm going to do a whole show on this, but I'm gonna give you a, a real quick synopsis tonight. There's a qualifier on the timeline of the mark of the beast and it comes through revelation 13's mention of the second beast. The second beast is a very specific person that comes with the first beast. The first beast has a qualifier. He shows up 42 months before Yeshua returns, and the world wonders after him. So these are all qualifiers that does not match a theological imposition of Sunday law written about by the Catholic Church. I do agree that the Catholic Church is an implementation um, of a false priesthood that is a part of the beast system, but I don't think that they are the beast. They're more like the, the woman that rides the harlot that rides the beast. If, if I could put it like that, in my opinion, but their you know, their um, attempt to enforce a Sunday law is nothing more than what we would see in the days of the Maccabees where you had uh, Antiochus Epiphanes trying to force people to eat pork. So it's, you know, it's, no, I there's specific context to the mark of the beast, and I'm gonna do a show about that in the future. So, guys, I really appreciate y'all joining me tonight. As always, we look for context, right? We're seeking knowledge, wisdom, and understanding of his word and this world so we can relate his word to this world. That's our heart for this podcast. And please, if you like this, hit the thumbs up button, subscribe both to Kingdom Cast and also to Kingdom of Context. Help us help us get Kingdom Cast up to the same amount of subscribers as we have here in Kingdom of Context. That way, because I'm going to start doing the show only on Kingdom Cast in the future. So I really appreciate you guys, and uh, we hope to see you back here uh, tomorrow night.